You're listening to Safer Travel Talk, the podcast to inform, inspire, and provide insight into the world of travel. We caught up with our friend Mark Mattinson to discuss his recent volunteering experience in Kenya with the non-profit children's charity, Future of Taru. Good evening, how are you doing? I'm all right, how are you? Yeah, very good, thank you. So Mark, we've known each other for a long time um, and I know that you've done a lot of volunteering over the years and you initially started with us, didn't you? So it was, oh, you, I first met you when you started volunteering for the charity. Um, just go into a little bit about why and how volunteering's kind of evolved for you. Um, yeah, certainly. So I started volunteering for Caroline Drumbo Foundation in 2015, I think it was. Uh, so it was during... Uh, towards the end of my first year at York St. John University, um, on the back of a travel safety talk that you did for us while we were at university, I'd done quite a lot of backpacking at that point um, and had a module coming up uh, called a career in business where we had to look for a placement uh, with a local business um, for a, a semester. And I thought it made sense to to do that as a volunteering position with a charity initially um, for sort of two, three months. Uh, we put on a, a fundraising uh, cruise with local local bands um, and then continued from there really just just remained as a volunteer for the duration of my uh, degree at St John's. Mm. Oh, it was fantastic and great to work with you over the years definitely. Do you know can you remember back because I try to do it sometimes and just remember back why you were interested in travel in the first place how did you how did that first experience kind of come about? For me, it was, we would, you know, we went on family holidays and then you kind of, oh, I just want to go and do that and I want to go and do this. And it just kind of grew from there for me. And I just mm. wonder how, how that kind of worked for you. Well, the real reason I first went traveling, the first sort of, um, sort of big trip I did was, um, actually it was traveling with a friend and it was his idea. So he was looking at doing it anywhere. Um, and he asked me if I if I fancied going along. Um, I was I'd just handed my notice in where I was working, and I was going to be looking for something else to do. So it wasn't something I'd necessarily directly thought about doing at that point. But what, as soon as it was suggested, I suddenly couldn't really think of anything else mm. I wanted to do then because I I realised what an opportunity it was, and so then it got straight down to sort of planning which country to go to first, how long for, where to go next. Um, I'd always, but I'd never really travelled outside of um, outside of Europe, apart from going to Disney with my family when I was a bit younger. So I hadn't done any real off-the-beaten-track stuff at that point. Um, so suddenly it opened up this world of imagining going to places where they'd filmed Indiana Jones and things like that. And... Um, that was kind of what I was expecting and, and almost a bit what it was like as well, to be fair. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah it is. Did you, did you find it was once you've been to one, there's, there's another 10 places you want to go and there's another 10 places and it's it kind yeah. of snowballs in a way that you just can't really control it. It's just, there's a lot more places. It opens up the world to, oh, this is possible, that's possible, I can go here, I want to do that. Yeah, very much so. Because uh, every youth hostel you go to, you meet somebody who's been somewhere that you haven't been to, and they tell you a really good story about it, and then you lock it away in the back of your mind because you think that's definitely just been added to the list, yeah. and then that just that ends up avalanching. So I've still got loads of places on the list now. Um, sadly, I have a 
proper job. So it's a bit harder to to do to do these things um, as you get older. Um, so yeah, advice to anyone: do as much as you can while you're younger and fit as many in as you can. Yeah, um, but it definitely does um, increase quite quite dramatically. The more you travel, the more people you meet. Um, the more you start watching travel programs on TV or reading books, or um, yeah, yeah, it really does uh, become quite difficult to say no to. <laughs> mm, yeah, if you get an opportunity, it's it's about taking it. I mean, it's not for everybody. It's not you know. There's some nope. people who say, "Oh, I wish I could go here. I wish I could do that," but they they might not want to or really want to. I think you have to have that kind of drive inside that that really pushes you to to go. Yes, I'm I'm actually going to do this. Because it's a big commitment, isn't it? You know, certainly to go away yeah. for you know more than two weeks or a decent length of time, it's you've really got to commit a hundred percent. Yeah, I think definitely. I think I think you learn the most probably that first time that you go away, um, and you know you suddenly realise you're gonna you might not have to do it, but you're gonna be in charge of your own washing, getting it done. You might be taking it to a laundrette, but um, or you might be hand washing it in a sink somewhere, um, which which we did quite a lot. Um, so you're suddenly responsible for that. You might have been, you know, when you were at home anyway, but, you, you know, there's a good chance at the sort of 18 to 20 years old. Maybe you weren't. Maybe your parents did that type of stuff for you. You're probably going to have to cook for yourselves at some point, if not a lot, depending where you're travelling. Um, so you you learn a lot of life skills, but you also just learn if it's if it's for you, like you say. Um, and, you you know, I've sort of known of some people who've sort of been back home within a week and wasn't really for them and some people who were... 20 years on still doing it now mm. so um, I think you do find out quite quickly definitely mm. no I've certainly got friends the same who they've gone away they've had a great time they've come back and they've slipped into you know a real job as you say but there's others that have made the career where where they are you know that we've we've gone out did a lot of snowboard seasons and things as we've talked about and there's people that are still there 20 years later you know and it's you think, well, that's, you know, you've, you've obviously loved it that much. You've decided to make your life out there. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, my best mate who I did sort of most of my travelling with, he's in Indonesia at the moment um, for about two months, scuba diving and and dodging the winter, um, as I used to like calling it <laughs> back in the day. Um, so yeah, you know, it is. It's it's certainly um, not for everyone, but um, once you get get the sort of thirst for it, it's hard to. Mm. Had to say no to. Mm, definitely. So you've just done another volunteering experience. Um, yeah. With uh, the Future of Taru. Yeah, Future of Taru um, Academy in um, in the town of Taru in Kenya. Yeah, so it's a, it's a school uh, which was set up by uh, a former boss, if you like, of mine. In fact, the boss who I'd handed my notice into to go travelling the first time I went travelling... <laughs> Um, when I worked for a supermarket uh, back in 2001 and um, our paths have somehow crossed again well not somehow really we just reconnected via social media a few years ago and um, he's now doing something very different um, working for uh, a charity in Carlisle where he's from and he's also quite amazingly built a school in Kenya um, which I had the privilege to go and visit and to work at, if you like, for a week in January this year. Mm. What made him do that? What well, gives a little bit of background of why he he took? Because it seems to me that it seems amazing to do, but kind of very. There must have been a reason. It was a very niche or something that that's driven him to do that. 
Yeah, it's. Um, I'm sure he won't mind me sort of saying this because I think he's told many people this story before. So it's, I mean, it's a fairly personal story, but um, a few years ago now, um, probably about seven or eight years ago, I think um, he, he was quite ill and um, not given a very good chance of survival by the doctors in the hospital. So he'd pretty much sort of gone to sleep one night with the doctors not expecting him to wake up. And, um, and he did wake up the next day. And obviously he was still quite ill. Um, but he managed to recover over a period of time and decided, um, you know, and this might sound like a bit cliche, but decided I want to do something to make a difference now. Now I've effectively had a bit of a second chance. Um, and he, um, he married a a lady from Kenya who's now his, uh, his wife. Um, they've got a little boy together and they used to visit and they still do visit Kenya two or three times a year when they can. Um, and he decided he wanted to, uh, to try and support, um, education in Kenya somehow. So, um, his wife, uh, Eunice, uh, and, and, and Paul visited uh, the town of Taru and they started um, sponsoring, I believe it started with one one child at one school. Um, and so Paul paid for the sponsorship himself, which paid for um, the child who now attends their school, um, I believe, who's called Joy. Um, so he paid for her to, to study and that pays for... Um, you know, all the sort of costs associated with education um, because it's compulsory to go to school in Kenya, but there's also no free education. So you have to go, but you have to pay. So you have to, that money has to be found from somewhere. And obviously if some people can't afford um, to pay for their children to go, which is what Paul had become aware of. Um, and so he started sponsoring one child and then two and then three, and then I think four or five. And at some point decided, well, why, rather than, well, then they started raising money through sponsors online for other children and then ultimately decided why not build our own school because then we're in full control of the quality of the teaching um, and everything else that goes with that. So food, drinking water. Uh, so around two and a half, two and a half years ago, they had the, they bought the land, built the school. I believe they started with 23 children, something around that, around 20 um, and at the last count, the last I'd heard, there's somewhere around 250 children at the school wow. now. It's incredible. Amazing story. Mm. So you wanted to get involved or you you decided you're going to give a bit of time and go out yeah. there and see if you could help? Yeah, basically. So I started um, about a year and a half ago sponsoring uh, one of the children at the school, a little lad called Ian. Um, and then last year I started sponsoring a second child. So um, child sponsorship when I started it was 10 pounds a month uh, and that pays for the teacher, pays for the food, pays for the drinking water. Um, when we throw in sort of food and drinking water, if, if they didn't get fed at school, my understanding from having now been there is that the children would probably only get fed on an evening at home because there wouldn't necessarily be the money for breakfast mm-hmm. and lunch. So that's, that's a really big thing. It's a really big um, reason for children to attend the school, not just the quality of the teaching, which is, which is very, very good. Um, and also um, sort of unlimited uh, free access to drinking water as well the whole time that they're at school, which again is something that a lot of them wouldn't have. Mm. Um, so the £10 a month, um, I think it's now £12.50 a month, pays for uh, for all of that, along with any any associated fees for any building work, any repair work. 
um, things like that. So that's how I'd started. And then I met up with Paul in York about 18 months ago, just around the time I'd started sponsoring uh, Ian. And he said, if you ever fancy coming over to, to help out, we're always looking for volunteers. So I thought, well, I've always wanted to go to Kenya as well. So it's a good reason to go. Um, and I said, I'll let you know about that. And then just one thing um, and another, just trying to trying to work out the time off. It ended up being about 18 months, but um, I worked it out for, for January 2020 to go for a week. Uh, so there we go. Yeah. Fantastic. So you're, you know, I mean, you're a seasoned traveller. You've done, you've done a lot and, and a lot of off the beaten track places mm. as well. It's not been comfortable travel all the time. And I presume Kenya was, I've never been myself, but I presume it was that kind of travel that, you know, it's, it's, I wouldn't class it as easy travel. It's, it's hard work. You've got to prepare yourself. How did you prepare for this, this experience? Well, I was quite lucky um, in a couple of ways, really. One, I, like you say, I travelled quite a lot, um, and so I was I was fairly prepared for for that. Although I'd not been to sub-Saharan Africa before, so that was that was that was a new, um, a whole whole new world, literally. Um, but I, so I got in touch with Paul. Um, it was say he's the founder of the charity, and he sent me a checklist of things to do so it was actually quite easy mm. um, I didn't have to really think um, out of the box about anything I had a, a, a nice little two side of A4 check, check sheet um, about what to prepare and what to consider so I had a link for um, getting my visa sorted um, I had a link uh, uh, regarding which um, injections I'd need um, I had uh, a list of considerations about what type of food I'd be eating while I was there, what the um, shared living accommodation would be, because that by volunteering you get your accommodation and your meals um, sorted out for you. Mm. Um, so I had all of that. And then a lot of cultural considerations, um, how the children would react to me being there, so what my presence, what behaviour would that um, bring out in them, you know, sort of be prepared to to very much be the centre of the attention every time you walk into a room, and um, how to kind of deal with that. Um, so I was pretty lucky, really. Um, you know, the Future Taru um, charity, very organised, had a great great checklist, and and I kind of worked through that. Um, there was a couple of things um, I I didn't because I always thought Kenya was a really popular tourist destination for UK travellers, which 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 it is, but um, I didn't sort my money out until the day I went, and that it's not a currency that, that's kept in stock, really? in um, certainly in York anyway. But I was able to sort it out when I was there and got a better rate than if I'd got it in the UK as well, so that works out quite well. Yeah, some things by accident seem to work out better. Yeah, definitely. Is, was there anything on the checklist that you... Um, that just you ticked off and goes, oh, I'd do that anyway, I'd do that anyway, no problem. Um, and as a seasoned traveller, you'd think, oh, yeah, that's, that's no problem, that's no problem. But as somebody who maybe hadn't travelled or volunteered before, would there be things there that you'd think, oh, hang on, I'd be wary of this or this might concern me a little bit more? I think I, I don't think there's anything on there that surprised me simply because of, where I've been before, and that's certainly not been big-headed about it, but, you know, after sort of travelling through Burma and bits of the Himalayas and a lot of South America and places like that, I was sort of fairly well prepared for it. Um, 
so I don't think there's anything that surprised me as such. Um, but yeah, certainly uh, maybe for people who haven't travelled as much before and if they were going to volunteer, certainly um, in somewhere like Africa, then you know there are considerations around injections and things to have. And some of them will be ones that you might have had when you were younger, but they've lapsed. Um, you know, considerations around the type of food that you'll be eating because you very much were eating the same food as, as the locals. Um, which was fine. It was nice, tasty, wholesome food. Um, there was a lot of carbohydrate. There was not a lot of meat, um, yeah. not a lot of vegetables because they'll eat what they've got the, the, the biggest supply of and also what's going to fill you up. You know, it's, it's definitely not um, a rich place. There's there's certainly no Western food outlets or nothing like that. And certainly in the town where the, you know, there are in Mombasa and in Nairobi, but... Um, in the town where the school is, uh, it's very much, um, you know, a traditional um, non-tourist destination town. Mm. Um, and most of the time, to be honest, is spent in the compound of the school. So the school is um, is uh, surrounded by a large wall. It has 24-hour security. Um, that's not to say at any time I felt unsafe uh, while I was there. And we did spend some time out of the compound, Um but at the same time, I suppose it must be there for a reason. Mm. And so it's good that that's something that the charity have considered and that they have got 24-hour security. They are looking to um, to create some bed space because a lot of the children are orphaned as well. So they are looking at creating bed space on site um, as the as the number of rooms increases. So, I mean, it's a, it's a volunteering you know, opportunity, but that does mean work. You're not going for fun. It's there's an element of fun, and you want yeah. to go, and you're ticking somewhere off your list. But you know, your average day is a, is a day's work. Yeah, very much. Yeah, I was up up pretty early most mornings. Um, you know, sort of we've woken up about five because there's a cockerel just behind where the school is, so <laughs> uh, and the sun comes up pretty early as well. But you normally wake up, uh, probably get up about sort of seven ish, have some breakfast, and then. Um, I mean, the children start school about seven, to be fair. So they were normally there before I, I, I was there, but they'd, the teachers had asked you to come down for about eight. Uh, and then, so over the course of the week, the week I was there was their first week back after Christmas, New Year uh, holiday. Um, so over the course of that week, I did at least one lesson with each class, of which there were at least 10 classes um, teaching English, which I didn't find out till I, till I got there. Um, so I suppose in some respects, I maybe could have prepared for this a little bit better, although I think I got got by okay. Um, but, you know, Paul from the charity had said, you know, anything that you do while you're there will be greatly appreciated. And um, so I suppose in that respect, I didn't prepare too much. When I go back, so I will go back again, then I'll maybe try and prepare some some lesson plans and things like that. Mm. Um, they've, they've obviously got a curriculum, they've got textbooks. Um, so I... I did say well I can quite happily do something out of the textbook if you like but uh, for the teachers while they had the opportunity of um, a native English speaker albeit from Yorkshire um, there <laughs> they um, they said no we're like happy for you to to do something that isn't in the textbook and something mm. that they wouldn't um, they wouldn't normally do um, as such so you know we started off maybe just chatting with the children and just you know introductions things like that and then uh, they had head teacher had um, said that because they'd been off for a couple of months because their longest school holiday as opposed to our summer holiday is their Christmas one um, said some revision of uh, sentence structure and things like that would be great 
which clearly I wasn't prepared for. Um, and I, I was thinking I can just about remember what a verb and a noun and an adjective are. <laughs> I can't quite remember why they go in the order they do in a sentence, but you know we can we can do it. So yeah, went through uh, doing some example sentences for the children with verbs, nouns, adjectives in, and then asked them to construct similar sentences but changing the subject so that it was about themselves rather than I was talking about myself. Uh, and went through like that, and they all picked it up. The level of English was pretty incredible, to be fair, you know. Oh, yeah. um, so we'd look at, we were doing that for, say, children of about seven or eight years upwards, of, uh, seven or eight years of age. Um, the younger children, uh, I'd look like I'd been, uh, been given loads of donations um, before I went from friends, colleagues, um, a couple of them people I didn't even really know. Uh, so we had picture cards with words on. So we were using those for the younger classes to try That's and get them used to the um, uh, associating the picture with the with the English word for things because they've got English was the third language for all of the children in the school. Wow. But you you wouldn't guess it because they speak it literally fluently. Um, certainly by the time they're eight nine years old, um, even some of them younger than that. So they'll have a tribe, but there's 42 or 43 tribes in Kenya. So they'll all be associated with with one of the tribes and they'll have a tribal language, which then I think it will be slightly different depending which part of Kenya they live in because some mm-hmm. tribes are spread across a big area. Uh, then everybody speaks Swahili and then everybody learns English in school. Wow. Um, but yeah, their English is incredible. I remember holding up one of the picture cards and it had a lion on it. And I held the picture card up and one of the... And the children were probably only about six, five or six years old. And a little girl at front said Simba. And I didn't realise at this point that the names of the animals in Lion King are all Swahili names for the animals. So I thought she must have seen Lion King and was associating the picture. So I said, oh, yeah, Lion King, very good. And then I found out, no, Simba's the Swahili word for lion. Wow, um, I didn't know that. No. So I, I learned something from being there. Yeah. Um, but that, you know, that that was great. And then, you know, then we'd get them to draw pictures, um, sort of copy the pictures on the cards, things like that. You know, I wasn't going in there as, you know, some sort of groundbreaking teacher or anything like that. But I think it was probably good for them to just meet a, a native English speaker. Um, you know, they, they laughed at a lot of my pronunciation, things like sort of bus and anything with yeah. a U in the middle was obviously very different to how their teachers very pronounced broad. it with our, our northern accents. Um, but yeah, really, really worthwhile, you know, mm. yeah, brilliant, really good. Was there any other volunteers there when you were there? Not while I was there, but um, just after I left, about two weeks after, they had a, a couple of volunteers, I believe um, a Brazilian gentleman and a lady from France um, going for a, about two months, I think. Fantastic. I think they might still be there now, or maybe just sort of finishing up. Mm. Um so yeah, so the so Paul who set the charity up, he, he's bought the land that the school's on. Um, everything to do with the school itself is funded by the charity. So every penny of every donation goes directly into the school, into the teachers and the children. So if he travels across, he pays for that out of his own pocket. That's not that's not funded by the charity. But he's then out of his own money bought the equivalent square of land next to the school. So he has a house there. Um, which is still in the process of being built. Uh, at the upstairs of the house is the living accommodation for himself when he's there and any volunteers. So I, I stayed in, 
in one of the bedrooms there. The two volunteers that are there currently there, they're currently staying there. There's somebody on hand to do all of the cleaning and washing and preparing of the meals. And then in between doing things with volunteers, they'll be helping out at the school anyway. Um, so before I went, I said that I'd try and raise some money to help them build a secondary school. Because that's now, now there have been two or three years, they've got to a point where some of the children are graduating from primary school to go on to secondary uh, or high school, if you like, which is normally around 14 years old. Um, so raised about £1,200, which has gone has gone into that. Um, now, the, the school year was starting in the end of January uh, for the high school children. So there wasn't the time to build, and they're going to need, obviously, more money than that, but there, there wasn't going to be the time to build a school then. So he's actually converted the downstairs of his house into the high school. Wow. So there's at the time there was about eight or nine children uh, who were who had just finished in November and needed to start high school. So just as I was leaving, they'd very quickly gone out and started sorting out desks, chairs, blackboards. Um, so the downstairs of the house is going to be the temporary high school until they get the next plot of land and then build the high school. And then they'll sort of move on from there, which is kind of pretty much how the first school started, I think. It just started in one room while they were building um, and went on from there. So, it's, I mean, it's great to have been at that point, mm. uh, to have seen it just at the beginning of the next sort of chapter, if you like. Um, I'm sure when I go back, I'm not sure when it'll be, but hopefully I can go back at the end of this year or start of next year. And, um, but yeah, it'd be great to see how it's developed. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think it's something that you're obviously passionate about and you'll be involved in for, for many years. Um, <clears throat> did you get much time to yourself? Um, yeah, I mean, I flew out there on the... I got there on the Saturday and the school wasn't reopening until the Monday. So I actually had the weekend... The first weekend, I did Mombasa. So met up with Paul and Eunice um, and their little boy, uh, Matthew. And, uh, and Eunice's brother, Kamal, he lives in the town, but he, so they all, they were all in Mombasa having a few days together. Um, so I met them there and, uh, we, yeah, we just had a couple of days sort of at the beach, you know, I just had a couple of tourist days really, um, mm. which was great because it was good to also go and see what Kenya's like. And, yeah, you know, yeah. I didn't get the chance to do a safari or anything. I'll do that next time, but, uh, hopefully, but it was, it was really nice coastline, really clean, really, really friendly people. Um, had some really nice food and then uh, on the very early on the Monday morning we drove across so we got to the school as it opened um, and then we had the full week Monday to Friday at the school left on the Saturday so you don't you don't <laughs> really get a minute to yourself while school's open mm. um, because everybody's just so happy to see you and, and to be fair you're so happy to meet everybody else that you kind of don't want to waste any time because you might be able to help someone in one minute you know that you might you might spend elsewhere um on an evening though obviously the school's finished everybody goes home um and so there was sort of downtime on an evening to to read a book or watch a watch a movie or something like that um obviously you'd have to take things like that with you so take books or kindles or take uh, ipads or things to watch to watch mm -hmm. films on but there was a bit of downtime on an evening um but yeah, during the daytime, every every second that you were there, everybody wanted to um, speak to you, high five you, <laughs> ask you questions, get you to play football with them, things like that. Brilliant, brilliant. How can people get involved if they want to do something 
like this or something that you've you've just come back from? Um, I think at the moment, say for for this specific charity, um, Paul's listed with a website called workaway.com where there are opportunities to um, to volunteer your time in return for sort of food and food and lodgings really. So, uh, and I believe that's how the two volunteers who are at the school at the moment um, actually got in touch. Uh, and I think it's got at least another two or three lined up throughout this year. So it's not something I'd heard of before, but I'm aware of it now, simply by asking Paul where, where his volunteers were coming from. So that's workaway.com. Uh, specifically for this charity, their website's futureoftaru.org. There's a contact form on there. Um, I mean, for me, I sort of got connected with it because it's somebody who I know who set it up. So yeah. I hadn't necessarily gone out looking for that, but... Um, yeah, certainly workaway.com uh, seems to be a good way to get to get into that. Do you think volunteer experiences are getting more popular over the years? Do you think there's, it's a good way for people to see the world? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I certainly imagine there's more opportunities for volunteers mm. than there used to be. Um, with more international travel, with the internet, it's probably a lot easier to, to find out about them. Uh, I think it's a great thing to do um certainly when you're younger but when you're older as well you know i've got in fact one of our directors at work has actually just signed up to go and do something similar for a week uh, at a school in africa this summer um and i'm I'm not sure how old she is she's a bit older than i am but um you know i don't think there's an age limit on when you can do it anything like this but i'd certainly imagine that you know because of the the fact because of globalization the fact the world's getting much smaller it's probably a lot easier to do stuff like this. And as a result, there'll probably be more people advertising opportunities like this. Um, and to any any young people interested in doing it, it, you know, it only helps, well, it helps your CV, but that's not the reason to do it. It helps you as an individual, I think. Um, you learn a lot about, I learned a lot about myself when I went to Kenya in January of 2020 and I was 38 years old then. I thought I'd probably found out most things, but um, it was a, it was a pretty. It taught me a lot about. Um, taught me a lot about materialism and things like that, and you, how much you do take a lot of things for granted when you. I mean, I literally, you know, um, dropped into a into a town um, that I'd never heard of, that was, you know, completely not westernised at all. Um, there was no materialism. There was nothing. Um, you know, going into the classroom because we, I say, we had loads of supplies, educational supplies, classroom supplies that I'd been given that Paul, Paul had carried across as well. Um, you know, and to take a pack of new crayons and put them on a table, you know, the reactions like you've just put a Nintendo down or something. Mm. You know, that's how much everything is appreciated, um, and it was the kind of um, reaction, you know, we as people from the Western world maybe wouldn't expect nowadays and have maybe forgotten about because, you know, there are people, you know, there are people in every country who are, who are, who, who are incredibly poor and need help. But it certainly reminded me of that, I think, by doing it, yeah. And certainly made me um, aware of what I've been lucky enough to do in my life and, and certainly not um, take anything for granted, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I remember years ago I spoke to... Um 
speaking, you know, doing the talks in schools and we do the presentations, but also I did one to the students in the day and in the evening I did one to the parents. They came and they, they were very much pushing the, you know, volunteering experience and saying, oh, well, it will make him or her, you know, better but an understanding more about themselves and and that level of materialism that sort of that generation's got now. I, mm. I certainly think sometimes you do need that, that wake-up call to go, hang on, there's, you know, the, the sun's setting, go and watch the sunset, and go yeah, and yeah. just take some time and talk to some people you don't know. And it's those little things, and certainly from my travels as well, and from helping people that you learn to appreciate, and hopefully you can cling on to when you, you come back into your reality. You know, you take that time and... It's not about this. It's not about that. It, it's more about just being aware and being in the moment and enjoying that that moment when you can. Yeah. So yeah, I can I can yeah, definitely see that. And it's I mean, humbling for me to listen to you talk about this. Yeah. It's very well, it's, very powerful. Very humbling stuff. to to go there really, you know, mm. and to and to do it. Um, really humbling. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's probably one thing. You know, for anybody who's who's interested in doing something like this, and it might sound like an odd thing to say, but I'd, in in a way to prepare yourself for going, I'd, I'd try and go with the mindset, um, and don't say it this wrong way, but try and go with the mindset that you can't help everybody every day while you're there. Mm. So I remember the first day I sat down um, to have a just have a cup of water. I was talking to Paul. And one of the children went past and the jumper was really ragged and had a big hole in it, you know, and I sort of felt, you know, well, I said to Paul, how much is a jumper? And he said, oh, they're about a fiver. And I took a bit of spending money with me and I wasn't really going to spend it because I wasn't in a position where I needed to spend anything. So I said, oh, well, I might get him a jumper because I feel a bit sorry for him, really. You know, poor, poor lad's jumper's got a massive hole in it. And then there was somebody else in the same position and somebody, and then mm. suddenly... The, 40, 50 children that I've seen who either need a jumper or a bag or a pair of shoes or something and don't worry, the charity do a lot of work to do that so he took a suitcase full of shoes with him, school shoes with him that a school in Cumbria who sponsor the school in Kenya um, had donated and so the children who needed the shoes most over the course of that week were given them. Um, some sponsors spend, send money through to get the child they sponsor a new school bag or things like that as well. But I remember sort of thinking at the end of that first day, well, I can't, I, can't, I don't have the money to, to go out and buy everybody everything that they need, you know. Mm. Um, but my first reaction was, well, I'll get them a jumper or I'll do this. But I suddenly realised, well, I can't do that. So what what can I do with the time I've got? And with, you know, I had a bit of spending money left when I left and I gave that to them to spend on whoever they felt needed it. Because mm. um, they didn't need it more than I would. But um, I... I couldn't solve everybody's problems in the five days that I was there. And no, I think that's course. probably important for someone to remember because I remember feeling quite bad after the first day thinking, well, I wish I could do, but it doesn't matter if you can't. It's just to be, um, to to positively go into it, doing what you can do in the time that you're there, I think. And, mm. you know, by the end of it, I think, hopefully, those English lessons, albeit in sort of uh, rough northern accent, um, we'll hopefully have you know sparked something in them, and they'll they'll appreciate it. We took we took a lot of football kits with us as well that York City had given us. You know now the children have got a sports kit, and now they're going to sign up for sort of regional sports 
day tournaments with other mm. schools and things, something Fantastic. they couldn't do before. So even just being the vehicle of taking that there, mm. um, you know, is great. So yeah, that's probably that's something I'd sort of say to people who are thinking of doing something like this. Yeah, that's a really, really good point because, you know, no matter how many people you help, there's always going to be more that need help. Yeah. But I think the the way that you've approached it is brilliant. You know, you take something that gives them an opportunity. You're taking sports kids, which has opened mm. up a whole new world that they wouldn't have known of before and given them the, the chance to, to go out and have fun and meet new people. Yeah, I think if, you know, again, anybody who's wanting to, wanting to volunteer, whatever the project is really, um, I sort of consider what your current network is uh, through through employment, through education. Who do you know? Who do you know who might be interested in supporting the work that you're doing? Mm. Now, I didn't go out and necessarily ask people for help as such, but um, I used uh, my LinkedIn to publicise the fact that I was going because I was looking to try and raise money. Um, and, you know, through people who, who I know through my network, uh, through my job in York, I had people from Visit York who donated crayons and colouring books and pencils and things like that. Um, and then at the commercial manager from York City Football Club, um, who we've done some some work together with, who got in touch and said, right, well, I'll give you some football kits to take with you. Which is an incredibly generous thing mm. to do. So he gave me five or six footballs and, and about 10 football, football shirts. And then I had a meeting with the... Um, lady who runs uh, the York City Football Club Foundation and she said well we've got loads of football kits that we're not going to use because there's going to be a new kit next season so I've and there was literally eight bin bags of football kits wow. I couldn't even take them all with me because yeah. um, my luggage restrictions so a lot of those are, getting, are going out next time Paul goes but it just shows from just popping something on LinkedIn or it might be on your Facebook page or Instagram or whatever communication channel is that there's, there are other people out there willing to help but maybe don't know there's something that they want to help with mm. or who have something lying around that, like I say, an old football kit that for no reason other than there's going to be a new one coming out, mm. um, have got all of that lying around and, and kind of looking for somewhere to give it to but don't know who to give it to. So um, it's amazing how many people are out there willing to help with something like this. Um, and so the more you shout about it, you know, your friends might get a bit bored of reading it on Facebook every week or LinkedIn <laughs> or whatever. But it's all about using your network to, um, not using the network, but uh, making the most of your network to find the people who are who are willing to, to be as generous um, with, with with whatever it is they have and with their time um, as much as the person who's, who's you know, mainly um, going out doing the work for the charity. There's plenty of people who are willing to support as well. Mm. What would you say? These are these are the three things that I would consider a priority. Meaning, you know, from a from a safety point of view or from a a well being point of view, what would you say? You know, I'm now I've been once. Mm. I'm going again, um, or to somebody else who's who's never been. What would you say were the the three things that would make their experience better and you know give them a little bit more security? I think based on. Um it was all really well planned, not by me, but by the charity when I went. So mm. um, I, I can't imagine much would be different if I go back. Um, so to flip it then, for somebody who's who who's going to go, who's not done anything like this before necessarily, um, I'd firstly, 
um, if it's if say it is workaway.com or something like that that you're using to find the um, the placement with, um, I'd have a look on there or if not, just have a general sort of Google and try and get some, there might be reviews out there from other people who volunteered. So I'd probably try and get something like that. And also just um, even the charity itself that you're looking to support, um, I imagine if they've had other volunteers, then they'll be quite uh, prominent using Facebook and Instagram and things like that to promote the activities of the charity. So that will give you an idea of, of how professional they are, how well run they are. So I'd, I'd certainly do that as research. Um, then if if the charity themselves don't supply you with it, um, I'd certainly ask for, you know, like a checklist um, similar to the one which I got from Future of Taru. So that gives you a lot of your preparation you need to consider. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, again, a professional charity really should be supplying that, I would imagine. But if, they, if they're not forthcoming with it, then I'd, you know, not be afraid to ask them. Um, and then thirdly, I think... It may well be that, um, like in the position I was in, uh, you have accommodation and you have food and drink and you've got somebody there kind of looking out for you while, you, while you're there. But it may well be that, um, as in this instance, the, the actual school itself or, you know, whatever, the, um, whatever it is that you, you're volunteering with, it might be a long way from a national airport or a train station. So... I imagine having that transport pre-planned and if you can um, and this is from somebody who didn't like to pre-plan any form of transport a lot because I like to you know generally used to kind of try to take each day as it came I just have a rough idea of where I was going but I think in this instance because there's a good chance that wherever you're going to isn't going to be you know Taru isn't a tourist destination it's probably not even in the Lonely Planet guidebook for Kenya, I didn't even look. Well, I didn't need to do, but I can't imagine it would be because there's not really anything. There was a couple of tiny little hotels, you know. Um, in my instance, I was I was lucky that I was meeting Paul in Mombasa, who who set the charity up, and he'd arranged for transport to then take us there. Now I know in this instance that if um, any future volunteers who go there, then they'll arrange the transport for you to pick you up from Mombasa and then take you to the school, and then to get you back to Mombasa again. So it might be that you need to get from the airport to the train station, or maybe not even that, but I'd try and get that bit sorted, because it, it may be when you get there that your mobile phone doesn't work, or mm. um, you, you, you can't get on any Wi-Fi, so you've got no communication. So I'd try and get that sorted in advance, because you can have enough to think about, especially if you're not experienced in travel. So I'd try and make sure that at least you can get to the place where you're volunteering. Whilst you're there, you're going to have time to sort out, maybe getting back. Um, but I'd maybe try and have that, that sorted as well. What would you say the biggest shock was going into arriving at your destination? What's What hits you first? Well, so Mombasa, I arrived quite late at night. Um, well, in fact, no, in fact, I arrived into Nairobi and then I had an internal flight at Mombasa. Um, and, it, and I thought I'd left enough time to get my internal flight, which I had. But it's amazing how quickly time goes past while you're waiting for your luggage to come <laughs> off the international carousel to get across to the domestic terminal. And that, that hour and a half went went incredibly fast, but <laughs> I managed to get in there uh, in enough time. Um, but then I, I, I don't think in this instance anything else massively, anything really did sort of shock me because it, it wasn't too dissimilar to, to airports that I'd been to before. I was lucky that... Uh, my friend met me at the at Mombasa airport when I landed there. Um, 
and you know took me and my luggage back to where we were staying um very kindly took me out for a beer after that so that i sort of nicely acclimatized and i went off to bed um but then i think you know getting to taru it was um it was different once i arrived there and as i say just realizing how how much you are the the center of attention you know how mm. for a lot of these children at the school in fact the vast majority at the point when i'd gone really uh, there was only really Paul uh, and his sister who had volunteered there previously. I think they were the only white people that they'd ever met. Um, a lot of them, because um, I say it's pretty pretty remote. Um, and so just yeah, everybody comes up. Everybody you know the children run up. They want to grab your hand. Um, they keep touching your skin because it's a different colour, um, and they keep sort of comparing it with theirs because it's it's something completely new to them. Mm. Um, and I could imagine that might be a bit intimidating for people if I've, you know, that kind of thing has happened before when I've been to rural parts of India and Burma and South America. But I could imagine that could be um, quite, maybe not intimidating, but quite a shock for people if they're not if they're not used to that. Mm. And that's certainly what it was, what it was like. Um, you know, if you're not. I mean, a lot of people, if you were sat eating, you'd look up and everybody was staring at you. Um, <laughs> and even that could be quite intimidating for people. Oh. But you, I was pretty much stared at the whole time I was there. Um, but at the same time, then, like I say, everybody wanted to, as soon as they realised you weren't doing something, everybody wanted you to be doing something with them, whether it was going into their classroom to help um, or playing a game with them or whatever it was. Um but it was amazing, you know, if on a morning, say they get two meals a day, the first meal they get is, um, they get porridge, which is, it was it tastes like semolina, I think it's made of semolina flour. Um, so they get a big mug of that, and that's the breakfast. Um, and the kids were like racing each other to get to the queue, to get to the front of the queue to bring me my porridge. You wow. know, and I was like, it's all right, I'll wait till the end. But they wanted to be the one to bring it to me because they wanted to do something. To, mm. to help whereas I'd sort of gone to help them I was like look you guys sort your porridge out I'll, I'll look after myself but it was really touching that they were mm. almost <laughs> almost throwing each other out of the way to be the one to wow. to do that um, and then when you sit down to have lunch everybody wants to come and sit with you I'm not it's not a problem you know I'm sort of like I say I kind of expected that from from things I'd done before and again Paul had, um, the sort of prep document that sent through it did it did cover all of this but it's very different in real life to what yeah, it's like it's the on reality, paper. isn't it? I think I think that's that's huge when people are talking about travel and yeah. you know you can read it all and you can see everything on 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 paper and you look at all the photos of how amazing it is, but the reality can be incredibly different or mm. very much more intense than you could possibly imagine. One thing I'd recommend, or another thing I would recommend, would be. Uh, for for anybody who's considering doing this type of volunteering, would be to to take plenty of um, plenty of information about where they're from because people will be interested and they'll ask. So that might be photographs um, on a mobile phone, on a tablet, or something, um, or the ability to be able to to you know search for them and show them because there's a good chance it'll be where you're from it will be that much different to where you where you now are. Um, and to try and then explain the cultural differences, um, to show the differences in the architecture, to have photographs of your family and um, and the pl your place of work. These are all things I was asked while I was there. Um, 
you know, one point with the older children uh, who were sort of between the age of 14 and 18, but they're the ones who are going into the high school because um, some of them started school older than uh, they normally would have done, which is why there's, there's 18 year olds in that year group. Uh, and they were asking, they were asking me questions like that. And then one of them asked, um, is it true that uh, people in England earn lots of money because it's something that they've heard? So I said that there are lots of people in England who earn lots of money and there are some people who maybe don't earn as much money. Um, so I tried to explain to them in terms of uh, relatively whether people have a lot of money or not. And so I was I was trying to, without divulging what I get paid, I was trying to tell them how much of my money I end up with after mm. everything else has gone at the end of the month. So, mm. you know, 20% is tax and then X percent is your mortgage and, and so on and so on. And I said... You know, in a good month, I might have about 10% of, of, of everything left. And they couldn't believe it because they just assumed that you got loads of money and they didn't really think it would be that expensive yeah. relatively to live to live in England. Um, so, yeah, so I'll be prepared for a lot of questions about that. Um, you know, the, these are bright young children. If you go into a school, these ones certainly were. And they were, you know, and they, they do have access to, um, to a TV, some of them. Um, there was there was a bishop who was quite central to the school getting set up. Um, uh, so Christian bishop, and about tw- about fifteen percent, I think, of the children actually just sort of sleep in his compound in this fairly big compound that he's got because they don't they're they're orphaned, um, and he was quite instrumental in helping set the school up. Um, and there is a TV there, so a lot of them have watched probably CNN, you know, world news mm-hmm. and things, and and certainly a lot of them have watched football. Not that they they hadn't heard of Leeds United, my football team, or York City, sadly, <laughs> but um, but they'd heard of all all the other big teams, I suppose. Um, so yeah, so they you know these ones they did have some idea about um, the Western world, if you like, but mm. they really want to know a lot more about it. Yeah, sound very inquisitive, very mm, very yeah, much just so, wanting yeah. to find out more. And it's and it's not it's not what you've got; it's where you're from. Yeah. I think it's, it sounds like, from what you're saying, it's that different mindset of, you know, I'm interested in you as a person, not what you've got as a person. Yeah, no, nobody really asked me for anything. You know, nobody... No, I just said, want your time. Yeah, yeah. They just wanted to know... They wanted to know about you. Um, they wanted to know what I did. Um, but nobody asked me for... It's not to say that people wouldn't, but on this occasion, nobody asked me for money or nobody asked me to give them anything, mm. um, which was, well, not that I, I didn't expect that they would do, but um, I've been to some countries just as a traveller where um, every street corner you're asked for something, every time you're having a meal, you somebody comes up asking you for something, mm. either to buy something or to, to give them something. Um that didn't happen. That didn't even happen in Mombasa, actually, either. Um, so maybe it's a cultural thing. I'm mm. not sure. Not not expert enough to to give an opinion on that. But it was certainly, you know, I wasn't really pestered for um, for giving away money, possessions, things like that. Um, like I say, I think everybody was was that appreciative of of the time, I suppose, and the the things that we'd already taken across with us. Um, why why is volunteering so important or such an important part of your life? I'm not really sure, to be honest, because it's not something... I, I don't think I sort of sat there one day and thought, I'm going to start volunteering. Um, it was more... It, it came up as a result of something else. So 
Um, it came up originally myself and my boss saying, should we put on a put on a, a floating concert at work um, mm. on one of the passenger boats because it sounded like something really cool to do. Um, and she said, yeah, which um, which was great. And I said, oh, we could maybe raise some money for charity because I suppose once you got the opportunity to do something good, then you have to decide why are you going to do it, I suppose. And it, it, it initially started off just as a, a fun thing to do um, for our friends. And so I suppose that sparked in me then realising, well, any opportunity to do something like that would give you the opportunity to help other people if you can. Um, so it's always something I've been... It, it's probably not necessarily been at the forefront of my mind, but whenever there's been an opportunity to, to help, help a charity through a position I've been lucky enough to be in, then it's it's something I've I've tried to push to do. Um, but yeah, I don't know if there's a a particular reason why. Like I haven't done it to make my CV look better or to you know for anything like that. But all the benefits that you get from doing it are great. You know, it um, a lot of the volunteering experience I've I've um, gathered has certainly helped. You know, it's helped in my paid employment. Um, you know, dramatically, really. Event management and project management, putting on the gig and doing the stuff for Rainbow Foundation, they're all skills that have helped with the job that I do now. Um, so it's not to discredit the, or discount the um, the benefits of doing it, but I didn't necessarily do it to get those benefits. Mm. They're mm. just things that I appreciate, I've, I've gained as a result. Mm. Well, thank you, Mark. I'd like to say, you know, thank you ever so much for taking the time to talk to us. And of course, it's, it's always always good to catch up. Yeah, definitely. No, thank you. have a bit of a laugh. So thank you very much for taking cool. part. Thanks, Richard. And uh, yeah, for anybody who's interested in uh, finding out more about the charity that I volunteered for, uh, their website is futureoftaru.org uh, and the volunteering website that they're partnering with uh, to find volunteers is workaway.com. Thank you for listening to the second episode of Safer Travel Talk. To join us on this journey, make sure you follow the podcast on Spotify or subscribe if you're listening on YouTube. You can also find us on social media and visit carolinesrainbowfoundation.org for more information. Thanks to Richard Stuttle for hosting the podcast and Chris Healy for producing. Thanks again and we'll see you in the next episode.